Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Chronic Fatigue and Burnout Recovery Podcast. In the podcast today, I'm going to be talking about mast cell activation syndrome, histamine intolerance, and how this relates to fatigue and the part that this could be playing in your fatigue recovery journey. Mast cell activation syndrome, abbreviated as MCAS, and histamine intolerance may be part of the complex web of imbalances that we see in chronic fatigue syndrome like CFSME or other chronic illnesses, or even if you don't necessarily have a chronic illness per se or a diagnosed chronic illness per se, this could be something that's playing into your experience of health as a whole. So the purpose of this podcast is to cover the topic in more detail detail so you have a better understanding of the concepts but then we'll also be looking at how you can support your body if this is something you think you could be experiencing or how to know if this is something you are experiencing or not and how it factors into your total picture of health and well-being. So specifically MCAS can be associated with pain, cognitive dysfunction, brain fog, sensitivity to light and sound and intolerance to chemicals and smells. And when I'm working with different clients with different types of fatigue, they may not, some clients may have all of these symptoms, some may have one or two. And it's important to keep in mind that these could be histamine driven. There are obviously many different reasons for these symptoms as well. So many of these symptoms may go hand in hand with the picture of someone's chronic health complaints. But this doesn't necessarily mean that everybody who experiences chronic fatigue or has a chronic illness will have mast cell activation syndrome or histamine intolerance. Personally, I, I didn't. If I, if I had anything, it would probably only have been very mild and it definitely wasn't anything that I addressed specifically in my own recovery. But I do work with clients that have this as a primary concern and it's something we need to work with quite closely and prioritize in terms of how we're supporting their body back towards health. So it's definitely worth considering and also definitely worth supporting if it's what your body needs. So let's just take a step back for a moment and ask the question, what are mast cells and what is histamine? So mast cells are a type of white blood cells that are found in connective tissues throughout the body. They're typically located in the boundaries of the body. So where the external world meets the internal world. And this means that they are the first line of defense between the external world and the internal world. And they're generally found in the mucosal surfaces, such as the lungs, where we may interface with oxygen, the digestive tract, where we may interface with food and bacteria, and the skin, where we come into contact with all sorts of different things in our external environment. They can also be found near blood vessels, near lymph vessels, and in our nerves. So mast cells, when activated, produce a variety of inflammatory molecules, one of which is histamine. And histamine is an immune signaling protein that causes allergies and swelling. 
and it can affect many different organ tissues in the body. And this is why histamine intolerance or even muscle activation syndrome can often go missed or often isn't necessarily picked up immediately because it's not always immediately obvious that symptoms are being driven by histamine or, or driven by an overstimulation of mast cells. So with that in mind, what is mast cell activation syndrome or MCAS? Well, mast cell activation syndrome or MCAS is when mast cells become overly responsive and easily triggered, and therefore we release a lot of histamine. And this is usually a consequence of frequent or long-term activation due to ongoing infections, allergic reactions, or a toxic exposure. So mold mycotoxin exposure or mold spore colonization is a classic long-term trigger for mast cells. And if somebody has mold mycotoxins or has been exposed to mold for a long time, then that can start to create mast cells which are overly responsive and easily triggered, just as an example. So constant mast cell activation across time means that mast cells essentially struggle to differentiate between what is safe and what is unsafe. So your body is making millions of decisions every single moment of every single day as it interfaces with the environment. And it's making decisions about, is this something I should react to or is this something I should not react to? So muscle activation syndrome is when we start reacting more and more to things, even things that are potentially actually safe. And this means that over time we can become highly reactive to things like food or supplements or even exercise or heat exposure like the sauna you may be trying to use, smells, for example, you know, the perfume aisle in a department store or even skincare products. So if that's mast cell activation syndrome, then what is histamine intolerance? So histamine intolerance is different to mast cell activation syndrome. Mast cell activation syndrome is when the mast cells are hyperreactive and they're constantly releasing immune molecules, one of which is histamine. But histamine intolerance is when your body cannot handle the load of histamine that has built up in the body. And this may be due to increased histamine production from mast cells, but it can also be due to a high histamine diet or an ineffective breakdown of histamines for genetic reasons. And here, there are two main enzymes that help to break down histamine. The first is diamine oxidase, which we refer to as DAO, and this primarily breaks down histamine in the gut. The second is histamine N-methyltransferase, abbreviated as HMMT. And again, you don't need to remember these names, um, but that breaks down histamine outside of the gut. So because DAO breaks histamine down inside the digestive tract, digestive inflammation or digestive imbalances can impact this enzyme. 
So coming back to this idea of histamine intolerance, if you're eating a certain amount of histamine-containing foods, but then you have a digestive imbalance, that digestive imbalance or digestive inflammation may down-regulate the DAO enzyme, which means you can't break down histamine as well as maybe what you could before. And then you can experience symptoms of histamine intolerance, which I'll go into in a moment. But if you were to address the gut inflammation, you were to address the balance within the gut, now you no longer have that inflammatory impact on the DAO enzyme. It means for eating the same diet and doing everything just as you did before, your histamine tolerance has now improved. So as you can see, this is a little bit different to MCAS where we've got the mast cells continuously being stimulated. In this specific example that I've used relating to digestive health, improving digestive health improves enzyme function, enzymes break down the histamines to a level that the body can cope with that specific load. But now let's go back to this idea of the inflammatory gut environment. The DAO is not working very well then histamines from the gut can spill over into the rest of the body and that can overwhelm the body. And now if the HNMT enzyme is also not working well, that can start to exacerbate this total picture of high histamine. The other thing worth noting is that the DAO enzyme also requires certain nutrients to work effectively. And this is really true for all enzymes. All enzymes need vitamin and mineral cofactors, which is why having a diet which offers healthy levels of vitamins and minerals is really important for health in general and, and enzyme function. So the DAO enzyme needs zinc, it needs B6, it needs copper, and it needs vitamin C. So if somebody is experiencing symptoms of histamine intolerance, then it would make sense to kind of check up on those nutrients, make sure there is adequate dietary zinc, B6, copper, vitamin C, or supplement from external sources. The HNMT enzyme is a methyl transferase, which means that healthy methylation is required for healthy functioning of this enzyme. And specifically, this is going into a little bit of detail on the biochemical level, and specifically going into a little bit more of the biochemistry, we need a compound which is called S-adenosyl-L-methionine, abbreviated as SAMI for obvious reasons. And that is needed to activate the HNMT enzyme. So if we aren't methylating well, we aren't producing enough of this SAMe, and if we don't have enough SAMe, we're not activating the HNMT enzyme. So here we could get into a whole discussion about methylation, which I'm not going to do because it is quite complicated. It probably requires its own podcast episode. But for healthy methylation, we need specific nutrients. And those are nutrients like folate, B12, B2, choline, and creatine. So again, if we're kind of backtracking to this idea of histamine intolerance, we want to think, 
do we have the cofactors required for these enzymes which break down histamine to work really, really well? Can we maybe assess for methylation? Can we assess nutrient requirements? And maybe topping up on these nutrients supporting digestive health could make a difference with regards to histamine intolerance. So in summary, what we want to be thinking about is nutrient deficiencies, digestive health, and here maybe a stool test could be helpful, methylation, possible genetic polymorphisms, which are going to impact enzyme activity, not only for the specific histamine enzymes, but also for those involved in methylation. So that's just a kind of understanding of the difference between the mast cell activation syndrome and histamine intolerance. But now you understand a little bit about these two concepts. What are the symptoms? How do you know if this could be a problem for you? Common symptoms of mast cell activation syndrome and histamine intolerance are fatigue. Obviously, that's not, there's many, many reasons why someone could experience fatigue, but this is one of them. Therefore, with anybody experiencing fatigue, we would want to then think, well, does this person also have some of these other symptoms, which are cognitive dysfunction, anxiety, depression, asthma or shortness of breath, digestive problems like diarrhea and constipation, inflammation and swelling, insomnia and trouble sleeping. Do they have sinus issues like congestion and a runny nose? Do they have skin issues like hives, rashes, flushing, eczema, rosacea, itching or redness? Are they prone to allergies or allergic reactions? And then with regards to muscle activation syndrome, we might also be looking for things like brain fog, chemical sensitivities, chronic infections with difficulty healing, and then sensitivity to light and sound. So again, with some of these symptoms, there can be many reasons why someone would have cognitive dysfunction. There could be many reasons why someone would have anxiety. There could be many reasons why someone might be experiencing depression or asthma or shortness of breath. So just because somebody has these symptoms doesn't necessarily mean that muscle activation is a problem or histamine intolerance is a problem, but we want to consider the total picture of someone's health and then make an assessment. And I'll talk about some testing in a moment and then make an assessment whether it's possible that histamines or mast cell activation syndrome could be contributing to that clinical picture. So I've discussed a little bit about mast cells and I've discussed a little bit about histamine intolerance. But the unfortunate truth is that mast cells release histamine. And once histamine is released, histamine can then trigger mast cells, which release more histamine, creating what is a very obvious vicious cycle. And so this means that very quickly, histamine and mast cell activation can become a bit of a runaway train. And supporting the body means that we need to break the cycle. However, it's really important to note that mast cell activation syndrome doesn't always mean that we have a histamine intolerance. If your body can keep up with the histamine load being produced, you can have mast cell activation syndrome without histamine intolerance. And histamine intolerance without mast cell activation syndrome is another possibility. And this might be the case if you are 
not necessarily breaking down histamine so well for genetic reasons, poor methylation, gut inflammation, nutrient deficiencies, as we've already discussed, but you don't have overly active mast cells. So this is where it gets a little bit complicated and you're probably wondering, well, how do you know the difference? How do you know if you just have histamine intolerance or you just have mast cell activation syndrome or you have a combination of both. Well, mast cell activation syndrome is likely if the reactions you experience happen pretty quickly, anything within seconds to 30 minutes after being exposed to a trigger. That being said, delayed reactions are still possible and we need to rule out IgE allergic reactions as well. Mast cell activation syndrome may also be likely if you have symptoms which impact two or more different systems at the same time. So for example, your gut and your skin flares at the same time after being exposed to a trigger, or you experience fatigue, brain fog, and digestive symptoms. If you have a histamine intolerance only, you probably won't have the chemical sensitivities associated with muscle activation syndrome. You may feel good just by lowering histamine levels in your diet. And histamine foods may be your only sensitivity, so you're not sensitive to light and sound and chemicals and supplements. Your reactions may be a little bit more delayed, so 30 minutes plus after exposure to a high histamine meal. This is probably because your body needs time to digest the histamine in your gut before a reaction will occur. And you'll probably respond well to supplements like DAO. But someone with a mast cell activation syndrome may be less responsive to enzyme supplements because of the really high reactivity coming from the mast cells. So now that you have a better understanding about where you could possibly be on the spectrum, how do we address it? Well, if you've got a histamine intolerance only, this could probably be successfully managed by lowering the histamine load of your diet and then possibly taking some supplements to support the DAO enzyme or looking at things like nutrients which support the activity of that enzyme, the zinc, the vitamin B6, the vitamin C and copper I already mentioned. It's important to say here that a histamine intolerance is not like an IgE allergy or an IgG food sensitivity where foods need to be completely excluded like 110%. Instead, some histamine containing foods may be tolerated, but when the person reaches a certain threshold, then symptoms may occur. And this threshold will be different for everyone. Therefore, the best place to start would be to follow a low histamine diet and then wait for symptoms to stabilize. And this can happen pretty quickly if it's just a histamine intolerance. I've seen clients stabilize themselves within a week to a couple of weeks. It can obviously take longer depending on what the person has going on. And once we've got a sense of stability with symptoms, then we can gradually add a little bit more histamine-containing foods back into the diet and establish that person's unique level of tolerance. And I'll go into a little bit more on the specific dietary requirements in a moment. So the level of tolerance may also change as we support other areas of the body. So remember that the DAO enzyme breaks down histamine in the gut. 
And gut inflammation is something that would impact that enzyme and impact histamine breakdown. So if somebody eats a very low histamine diet, but in that time they're also offering digestive support, nutrient cofactors, they're improving their methylation, then they may be able to expand their diet again. And as they do so, they're able to actually eat more and more histamine-containing foods, maybe even tolerate more than what they could initially before they started the low histamine diet. And I have seen this with clients, clients who can pretty much just go back to eating without having to think about their histamine load because they've addressed the underlying imbalances. But then there may be other clients that need to be quite mindful of this in the long term. And that's probably when there's a more complex case history going on and they've switched over to the muscle activation syndrome. So mast cell activation syndrome is more complex. Mast cell activation syndrome develops when an imbalance has been going on for a long time and several imbalances are probably stacked on top of each other. So here we're looking at nutrient deficiencies, problems with methylation, gut infections, continuous exposure to toxins, and these are just kind of have been going on for a long time and tip the body over the edge. And therefore, we maybe need more time and we maybe need a lot more attention to detail to unravel all the complexity of what is going on. And the more sensitive someone's system has become, the more gently and slowly you'll have to work and the more patience is required. So if someone has got to the point where they're really sensitive to supplements, for example, but you need them to take the supplements to deal with the ongoing infection or toxic load, then it's going to be a very, very slow process. But it's really important to say that even though it's slow, you can progress and you can feel better even when you are very, very sensitive. So in the short term, we can lower the histamine load by following a low histamine diet and taking supplements that may help to stabilize the mast cells and prevent their activation. And here, quercetin would be my top choice. We can also support methylation for the HMNT enzyme, and we can also add nutrient cofactors for DAO. But long term, we really want to get to the bottom of what is triggering the mast cells. And this could be toxic overload from multiple different toxins or specific toxins. It could be mold spore colonization and mold spore mycotoxins. That's very, very common, at least in the, the population group that I'm seeing. It could be heavy metals. There could be parasite infections in the gut. There could be other infections in the gut, yeast, mold. There may be Lyme. There may be viral infections, which are ongoing chronic stress, trauma, and dysregulation of the nervous system, which is also kind of getting perpetuated by the chronic illness experience. And hormone imbalances are all things we want to look towards as we support somebody with mast cell activation syndrome. So I'd like to just take a little segue here and talk a little bit about histamine and hormone imbalances. Because if you are a woman, a woman with a hormonal cycle, it's worth being aware of how your hormones may be affecting histamines and histamine breakdown across the cycle because this could be something which is causing a cyclical nature to your symptoms. So both progesterone and estrogen may positively or negatively impact histamine. 
high estrogen, which is often observed prior to ovulation and in the luteal phase of the hormonal cycle, so post-ovulation, stimulates mast cells and also down-regulates the DAO enzyme, which is involved in clearing histamine from the body. So we can kind of end up in this vicious cycle where um, there can be an increase in estrogen, which is increasing histamine, but histamine can also increase estrogen, which further increases histamine. So just like we saw, we can have muscle activation syndrome, releasing histamine, which is then perpetuating the muscle activation syndrome. We can see the same when somebody um, is more estrogen dominant, which I'll touch on in a moment. Progesterone, on the other hand, stabilizes mast cells and upregulates the DAO enzyme and therefore can improve histamine clearance. Women produce progesterone after ovulation which means if there is a failure to ovulate for whatever reason and poor progesterone production in the second half of the cycle for whatever reason, we can end up with something called estrogen dominance, where we have more estrogen being produced relative to progesterone. And then as a consequence of this, we don't get those mast cell stabilizing benefits of progesterone. We don't get the upregulation of DAO from progesterone, but we are getting the downregulation of DAO from estrogen and the stimulation of mast cells from estrogen. And this can drive histamine upwards and cause an increase in histamine related symptoms in the second half of the cycle or around ovulation. In the first half of the cycle, at least for the first week or so, estrogen does tend to be a little bit lower. So if you are noticing a upswing in symptoms around ovulation or in the second half of the cycle, we would want to consider the role of histamine, but we would also want to consider hormonal balance as a whole and perhaps if there is any estrogen dominance going on. And if there is estrogen dominance, then you can listen to one of my previous episodes where I talk about how we can support that. But in a nutshell, basically what we want to be doing is making sure that you ovulate each month as best as you can, especially as women get older and they start to enter into perimenopause and beyond. Ovulation isn't always going to happen, but we want to ensure that it happens monthly for as long as we can. And then we can also consider strategies for estrogen detoxification. So supporting your body to clear estrogen from the body to lower that overall estrogen load. But remember here that we also want to address the root cause. So if there are infections, toxins, mold, nervous system dysregulation, we want to be addressing all of those things as well. It's not only about addressing the hormones. And then finally, If you're a woman, if you're in perimenopause or postmenopause and you are taking hormone replacement therapy and one of those is estrogen, we need to consider the impact of that on any mast cell activation syndrome symptoms or histamine intolerance. And this is where it's really important that whoever is providing the hormone replacement therapy for you has this in their scope of practice. They understand these connections and they can support you to monitor this and make sure that that dose is optimized for you because we do need estrogen for healthy mitochondria and we do need estrogen for energy. So it's not about not taking the hormone replacement therapy, but it's making sure that the body is supported from all angles. 
The next thing I'd like to just touch on very briefly is also nervous system support. This is going to be another foundational aspect of supporting yourself if you have MCAS or histamine intolerance. More so if you have MCAS, but I, I really believe that everybody needs nervous system support, whether you have a chronic illness or not. But here, an increase in histamine production is one of the consequences of the cell danger response. And I did a full episode, I think it was episode six, on the cell danger response, which is the body's universal response to threat. And so threats can be a toxin, they can be an infection, but they can also be the consequence of chronic stress and trauma in the body. And a nervous system which is stuck in an activated state or becomes very activated very quickly because there's been a loss of vagal tone may be associated with a higher histamine production. So yes, we do want to be dealing with the toxins. We do want to be dealing with any infections which are stimulating the mast cells. But sometimes it's not necessarily only a toxin or only an infection. Sometimes it can also be our nervous system state, which is keeping the body stuck in this heightened sympathetic response. And as a consequence, we're releasing a lot of histamine. So this is when you want to learn tools to support and regulate your nervous system so that you can get out of the cycle of being in a stuck state of survival, a stuck state of threat. And this is really important for healing generally, whether you have mast cell activation syndrome or a histamine intolerance. It goes beyond the scope of this specific podcast to go into the details of how we would support the nervous system. I do have another podcast on that. And I obviously have my Nurturing Resilience group program, which teaches you how to do that. But it's for most people, I believe, a really important part of the healing journey is learning how to support your own nervous system. And I would say if you are someone who's very sensitive to supplements, to foods, to light, to sound, you have a lot of sensitivities, your, your nervous system as a whole just feels very sensitive, then this is a really good place to start. And then the supplements and other interventions can come later. Because sometimes when there is a very sensitive system, even the things that we're doing, which are supposed to be supportive for the body, can be perceived as threat. And then that keeps us stuck in this state of threat and a state of high sympathetic activation. So by this stage, you may be wondering, is this something you can test? I've given some examples of symptoms. I've given some examples of the difference between a muscle activation syndrome picture or a histamine intolerance picture. But I know people also want to see on paper that this is an issue for them, especially if you're thinking about embarking on a low histamine diet, because it can be a real pain to have to do such a diet. So there are tests available that you can do for this, but I would say there isn't one magical test that will reveal all. Where I like to start or where I think we should all be starting is in functional medicine, we look at the client's case history. So the timeline of the events and history of their health across a lifetime. We're looking at the current symptoms and we're looking at test results. And we're combining those three things to make a decision about how to move forward. And then how someone moves forward and responds to those interventions then also gives more information about, yes, we're on the right track. No, that didn't work. Let's move into a new strategy. So there are testing options, which I'll share with you, but please bear in mind that 
we want to combine health history symptoms and testing to make clinical decisions. And if you are somebody who has a complex case, you probably want to work with a practitioner who can support you with this because it's really complex to do on your own. So in terms of testing options, really, really simple, cheap place to start would be a full blood count. In your full blood count, um, you'll get your eosinophils. And if eosinophils are elevated, and for me, elevated would be 3% relative to the white blood cell count. So what that means is you take your eosinophils, you divide them by the white blood count, you times that by 100. And if that figure is greater than 3 that could suggest that histamine or mast cell activation is a problem for you, but it's not a definite. The other thing we can measure is plasma histamine. That's quite a nice one to measure. And we also might want to assess for IgE. So IgE being allergies to food, environmental factors, or mold testing. We can look at IgE reactions to mold as well. Then once we've thought about this and we made this assessment that yes, we do think histamine intolerance or muscle activation is a problem, then we want to also think about, well, what are the potential triggers? And this is where you could use a stool test to identify potential infections or pathogens. We could use urine mycotoxin testing. We could use heavy metal testing. So we're really trying to get to the bottom of what is potentially triggering this system, what is keeping the mast cells activated, bearing in mind that sometimes it can just be the dysregulation of the nervous system. So now We've made an assessment, we've looked at the case history, we've looked at the symptoms, we've done some testing and we think, yes, okay, there's an issue here. What do we do next? Well, the final thing, or not the final thing, but the first thing we place we'd like to start is just to follow a low histamine diet. And a low histamine diet can be a really strict diet to follow, especially if someone is very sensitive. So therefore, when I'm working with a client, I usually just like to get the basics down first. And the most important thing here is stabilizing blood sugar because insulin can increase histamine production. So if blood sugar is going too high, if people are eating inappropriate amounts of carbohydrate, then we definitely want to stabilize that before we go into any strict dietary approach. We also want to consider, is this person supporting and stabilizing their nervous system? How are they sleeping? Do they have a good routine of morning light exposure, good bedtime? Are they sleeping well throughout the night? Obviously, a little bit of a catch-22 here because mast cell activation, histamine intolerance can impact sleep. Are they moving? Do they have a movement routine? Are they exercising? And how is their digestive health? So are there things specifically that we could be addressing in their digestion that would help them? Bearing in mind that sometimes digestive imbalances are histamine driven. So this may be a potential roadblock to stabilizing digestion. So in the context of what I'm trying to express here is maybe this person does have a histamine issue. But could that histamine issue be stabilized just by stabilizing their blood sugar, supporting their nervous system, addressing their sleep, addressing their digestion, and then getting into a good routine of movement, i.e. the basics. So we would always start with basics first. And then if they're in a stable place, then it might be time to trial a low histamine diet. Now, in terms of the context of this podcast, I won't go into like reciting off lists of foods that 
you should and shouldn't be eating if you're following a low histamine diet, you can find that information online. I'll link to a blog that I've written on how to follow a low histamine diet. But the most important thing I would like you to understand from this podcast is just the basic principles. And the basic principles I have already touched on, but it's that individual responses to histamine foods differ. And the best place to start might be to do a complete elimination of high histamine foods or foods that we need to caution around with histamine. So ultimately, the diet is a low histamine diet. And if we can stabilize symptoms on a low histamine diet, then we have the opportunity to gently expand the total histamine load and work out what that person's unique level of tolerance is. Once we've kind of got to a stable place where the person is perhaps being mindful of their histamine load, then we can also work on healing other areas. So working on toxins, working on infections, working more on the gut if necessary, and maybe that histamine load can be expanded over time. And as I've said already, I've seen clients just go back to eating pretty much what they want without any severe consequences. But each case will be different. And for those people who are more sensitive, this can take a really long time. So it's important to frame that and um, to not expect overnight results, but to expect that this will be a healing journey and patience is required. Although I won't go into the ins and outs of what to eat and what not to eat, I'll talk a little bit about some things that will help to set you up for success. So the first thing would be proper planning and preparation, making sure that you have the food that you need available so that you don't go hungry and you know what you'll be having daily or weekly. So organization is going to be fundamental to your success. And this really applies for any dietary change that you're planning to make. You also want to take it slowly. Some people with very resilient nervous systems can just throw themselves into change and make changes overnight. But when your energy is low and you're struggling with your health, you may need more time and less pressure to make change. So it's okay if you make small changes that move you in the direction of the low histamine diet over a number of weeks. You don't necessarily have to make these changes all in one go. And with that in mind, I recommend that you think about crowding in first. So what that means is that you focus on eating low histamine foods and you add more and more low histamine foods to your diet before you think about cutting out the high or moderate histamine foods. They may naturally become cut out anyway as you crowd in the lower ones. This means that you're eating enough and you're not going hungry. Which brings me to my final point here, which is that you make sure you eat enough. Also, having guided clients through elimination diets for years, one of the main things that they can do wrong is they undereat. They're so focused on what they can't eat that they don't eat enough. This drives cravings. Then they're not organized enough to have the right foods available, and they end up eating too much of the wrong things, and that can also drive blood sugar imbalances, it can impact sleep, and it can impact your energy levels as well. So if you need to, even if it's just for a week or two, you can log your food in an app like MyFitnessPal to make sure you're eating enough food each day. 
and also that you're getting things like adequate protein, adequate fats, adequate fiber in your diet, which are going to keep you full. It's also important to acknowledge that even if you do have to follow a low histamine diet, there may also be other things that you are reacting to which are getting in the way of your progress. And therefore, my recommendation generally is that you keep your food minimally processed. This will mean that you are less likely to expose yourself to things which could also be triggering your symptoms. I'm a big fan of the paleo diet, which would exclude things like grains and dairy and many but not all of the foods which cross-react with gluten. So this could be a good option is to follow a low histamine paleo-ish diet um, to cut out the possibility that you could still be reacting to things like gluten and dairy. And also work with a practitioner who can help to identify your specific needs. Sometimes we can it's all too easy just to throw the baby out with the bath water and be like, I tried that, it didn't work for me. But we may have blind spots, things we're not doing properly or adequately, and working with someone can help you see those blind spots so you don't drag out the experience of putting what you think is all your energy into doing the right thing and then realize that there were things that were missed. And so I would just like to touch on here a little note on food preparation and storage. When it comes to following a low histamine diet, how you prep, cook, and store your food can make a big difference, especially if you're someone who's very sensitive. So meat-based products need to be fresh on a low histamine diet. And therefore, my recommendation is that you buy frozen fish, poultry, or meat products from the allowed lists of food that you can eat preferably those that are frozen directly after catch or slaughter. And you can have conversations with your providers about the quality of your food and when it was frozen. Then if you have a freezer, you can store the frozen produce in your freezer and then you can defrost that at the time of cooking. So when you defrost frozen meat, thaw it quickly and cook it straight away. You can, for example, run meat in its packaging underneath a hot tap and even cook it when it's a little bit frozen. This might be beneficial if you're someone who's very sensitive. Once it's completely thawed, two hours is the upper limit of thawed meat. Once your food is completely thawed, then two hours is the upper limit that thawed meat should be kept sitting in your refrigerator. Once your food has been cooked, histamines may build up in the food. So ideally you want to eat straight away and then freeze any leftover food. And then when you thaw it and eat it, make sure you thaw quickly, reheat and eat quickly um, so that you're avoiding histamine buildup from the whole process. You do not need to leave leftovers to cool at room temperature before you can freeze them. Just package them away and freeze immediately. Although freezing slows histamine buildup, it does not stop it completely. So also be mindful of how long foods have been frozen in your freezer for. So four months is the upper limit for uncooked meat and three to four weeks for produce which has been cooked. So leftovers from a meal that you've already prepared. When freezing, ideally use silicone or glass and avoid plastics where possible because toxins can leach from plastics into your food, especially fattier foods, and trigger a histamine release. When you're preparing food, make sure all your work surfaces, chopping boards, and knives are clean. Wooden chopping boards are better than plastic for two reasons. 
less exposure to toxins and also they may harbor less bacteria. Obviously, if you're cleaning your chopping board, you just want to make sure that you rinse that with hot water and then give it a good clean after use. And the longer food is cooked for, the greater the histamine buildup. So if you're a slow cooking food, there'll be a greater histamine buildup than something that's cooked very quickly, for example, a stir fry. So those are some tips to get you started in the food prep and cooking department. As I said, I haven't gone into detail of all the high and low histamine foods because it would just be very boring me reading off these lists on my podcast, but you can check them out on my blog. So where I'd like to finish up today is to talk about supplements. And I've touched on this a little bit as we've been going through some of the other dialogue, but supplements can be helpful for supporting histamine intolerance and MCAS by either stabilizing mast cells or supporting the breakdown of histamines. So quercetin would be my top choice for MCAS. The error that most people make when supplementing with quercetin is they just don't take enough. And so the dosage is between 2,000 and 5,000 milligrams per day. So most capsules come in a maximum of 500 milligrams. You're looking at four to 10 capsules throughout the day. Therefore, you could start at the highest dose, that's 10 a day, see if you get any stability from that, and then titrate down and see what the lowest dosage is where you can maintain that stability. Or you can start with the lowest dosage, and if you don't get any stability, titrate up until you experience a benefit. That being said, I would say if you're going to be taking four to 10 capsules of quercetin a day, that's probably going to get quite expensive. So it makes sense first and foremost to work on the foundations first, to nail the low histamine diet, then add the quercetin if it's still needed. And then perhaps as you expand your diet, you could add in quercetin if you haven't been taking it already, or if you haven't got any benefit from all the stabilizing factors, the low histamine diet, then add the quercetin on top to see if it helps. And then it might be something that changes. So as you expand your diet, maybe you need to add in more quercetin so you can eat a higher variety of foods. Or as you work on other aspects of your health, maybe you don't need as much quercetin anymore. So it's definitely something that is in flux. Others which can be helpful would be things like stinging nettle, butter burr, mangosteen, ginger, and vitamin C. And the DAO enzyme can help with the breakdown of histamines as well. So I can see from my little timer here, I've been talking for almost an hour. I think we're at 50 minutes. So this feels like a good time to wrap up today because I appreciate it's quite a long episode. It could potentially be overwhelming, lots of technical information. So I hope you have enjoyed this episode today. Perhaps it's given you a little bit more insight into what you can do to support your body if you do have MCAS or histamine intolerance. Maybe now you're a little bit more clear on things you can do to optimize your low histamine diet in terms of food storage and food preparation, or you're a little bit more clear on how supplements can help you or how working on your gut can help you or nutrient deficiencies or the importance of methylation. So I will leave you here. If you have enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with others in your chronic illness community who may benefit from it. You can leave me a review on iTunes, which is always much appreciated. And I will see you in the next episode.